Welcome to Campus Conversations, a podcast where we bring on guests to talk about the news impacting students at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and in the surrounding community. My name is Zach Wenling, and I am the Daily Nebraskan Senior News Editor. My name is Carly John, and I'm an Assistant News Editor. And my name is Nick McConnell. I'm also an Assistant News Editor for the DM. We are your hosts today for Campus Conversations, which originally began in Spring 2019, but is back once again for Season 2. Today we are joined by UNL Chancellor Ronnie Green for a conversation on UNL's future, including such topics as COVID-19's continued impact on campus and the world, and the university's efforts to combat racism, racial inequalities, and sexual misconduct. Chancellor Green, thank you for joining us today. Well, really great to be here, Zach. Uh, start of a semester for all of us and uh, have a chance to talk about uh, both exciting things that are happening at the university and the semester that we have looking forward and how we're, we're uh, continuing to make big progress on our N2025 plan for the university that we announced just a little over two years ago. Um, so excited to be here. Chancellor, thanks again for your time. We're going to start out with some questions related to the coronavirus. Um, we're beginning our third year under the COVID-19 pandemic. What can students expect as they begin classes this semester? Well, you know, the, we, we are hard to believe almost in entering our third year of dealing with COVID-19. And we all remember that history pretty well going back to 2020. Um, we were hopeful that we would be saying that 2022 was the year that we had fully emerged from the pandemic. And of course, we, as we know, the conditions around us are really not in that state yet. Um, the new Omicron variant and the fueling of the new surge in COVID-19 cases uh, globally, certainly locally for us, has picked up significantly here uh, in Nebraska over the course of the last several weeks. And we're being told to expect that the peak of the Omicron surge is likely to be right right now, really right as we're starting our, our spring term. So we, as we have done continually through the pandemic, have needed to pivot our thinking. You know, you'll uh, recall our student population, our faculty and staff will recall that uh, back in December, we had uh, released COVID plans for the spring term starting that were modified considerably from what we had, had practiced in the fall um, around weekly testing and the cohort basis of you know, those who had not voluntarily registered the vaccine status um, and that required testing that then changed slightly in November to a kind of random surveillance based smaller uh, pod of testing for the remainder of the semester. Pivoting to planned that we would go to surveillance level testing for uh, the spring term, uh, the use of the Safer Community app being adapted to only being a communicative mechanism for uh, testing and for testing results uh, away from building access uses that had been used uh, since we started uh, earlier. And that had been our plan. Right, so then, then along comes Omicron, and here we are today, um, kind of knowing that we're facing a, a very high level and significant level of transmission. Uh, I would suppose that most of our students and our student body know multiple people who have networks of uh, current level positive cases of COVID or recent level positive cases of COVID. So we again had to think about the safety of our students first and of our faculty and our staff. It's been our premise throughout the pandemic and with the premise of wanting to be in person, 
100% in person in our instruction that we know is so critically important uh, as we move forward. So with that in mind, we have, as you know, gone through this re-entry testing period now where all of our employees first, our faculty, our staff, and our student employees went through the testing period last week and were able to, to find out for sure what the levels of transmission were at that level and then our students going through re-entry testing as we start the term uh, here as well. Uh, we still have left everything else in place where we are intending to be 100% in person with our instruction across campus. Uh, we still are using the same approach to the Safer Community app that we had planned to do uh, with that change in guidance in December uh, and we're looking forward to that. We obviously have had to make some changes around events and event planning given the current level of surge that we are seeing in the public and have adapted there as well. Uh, we did also, uh, you'll recall last two weeks ago, right after first of the year, uh, we announced that we would be requiring continued use of face coverings in our internal spaces on campus to protect all uh, around us and to try to reduce the transmission of COVID-19 as much as possible. Uh, we will review that on a timely basis to determine the length of time that will be required. Uh, hopefully this surge will come and will go. That's our hope that we'll see that happen and the predictions are that, that, that we believe that will happen and we'll reevaluate them as, as time goes on the need for the face covering requirement. So a little bit of change, a little bit of fluidity, <laughs> a little bit of needed continued ability to be fluid in our thinking about uh, how we really deliver on our academic mission, but at the same time do everything we can to protect our student body, to protect our community of UNL as a whole, and to help in protecting the community around us in Lincoln and Lancaster County. You know, one thing that you touched on pretty strongly there um, that I just want to kind of go over is the Omicron peak that you're discussing. You know, mm -hmm. that that's coming now mm -hmm. in the next few weeks. You know, this is kind of, it's, it's always a little bit nebulous. Right. We can always pinpoint afterwards, you know, this was the biggest day. Mm -hmm. These were the biggest days. This was the biggest week. Right. But we can't do that in the moment. Um, with Dr. Anthony Fauci estimating cases start to decrease towards the end of January. The general census will continue to see them climb and then decrease. Was there any discussion about starting initially online? Michigan State, uh, Northwestern, and the University of Illinois, who are other big STEM schools, are among just a few of the institutions that are starting online. Can you walk us through your thought process there? Well, we, we have always had as our goal to be able to maintain our academic instruction at, at the highest priority level available. Remember, we went to the one period of time when we couldn't do that. Um, and we went through a fall semester in the first year of the pandemic that was much more hybrid in nature and became you know, a, a lot of, of not in-person instruction that occurred during that semester as we kind of adapted to the pandemic. We certainly have as our highest priority being able to stay in person because we understand the need for that. We understand the quality of the education associated with that and the need for the socialization of that too, you know, candidly, all of those things together. So we have kept that as our goal number one with the caveat that we will follow what is the best health guidance for the protection of our student body. We're in a 
different place, even though this is a surge, you know, the Omicron-fueled surge as I referred to it earlier, we're in a different place relative to the pandemic itself than we were when we were making some of those earlier decisions, right? So we do have a population in our community, if you want to think about the UNL community as a cohort, uh, that is largely vaccinated and has taken the steps to to be protected by the availability of the vaccines and now the booster boosters associated with those vaccines. We also have a considerably higher level of COVID infection that has occurred, right? The number of people who have had themselves experienced COVID, I'm one of those. I had COVID in October, I think as many on our campus know, and have recovered from that, thankfully, without um, any negative effects. But there's there are, you know, those protections that are there from those who have had COVID within the reasonable level of time previously to still have that level of immunity. So it's a different population right. that we're dealing with than we had in the fall of 20, where we didn't have vaccines or we didn't have the availability of vaccines. A different population than we had in the spring of 21, because we were still trying to get as as much vaccine uptake as we could in our population as possible. We continue to do that, to encourage vaccination and boosting of vaccine status for ultimate protection of our, of our population. But the bottom line is, there is a large majority of our population that have taken the steps to be protected as much as possible, and therefore the risk as you want to think about it that way, is different than it was, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago to our whole population, if you if you follow my logic. So, so we we have uh, not seen to this point the evidence that would say that we are safer for our population being not in person than being in person mm -hmm. for our academic instruction. You know, all of those factors considered together. And you know, we, we felt the importance of being in person has outweighed any of the risks that are there that have been mitigated, so to speak. So. Understood. Briefly, um, is going back online a possibility for students this so, semester? Well, if we, we uh, obviously, by the history that we've already experienced, right, we didn't know what Omicron was until Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving timeframe of this year. Um, we don't know what the future of this virus or the mutations that may come with the future of the virus will be. We, we, we can't predict that, obviously. Uh, or if we had, we would have been in a different place than we are today. Um, so to, if things were to occur which made it unsafe <coughs> for our student body to be in class in person, or this is a big concern for us currently, We've been talking about this since Christmas, right, as, as the Omicron surge has developed. Or we cannot staff ourselves appropriately, right? We have, we have a business to run as an institution of our education in addition to being an academic institution as our primary mission. We have dining halls to operate. We have university housing to operate. We have events to operate in athletics, for example that require minimum levels of staffing in order to be delivered in a way that is safe and appropriate for all of our community, right? 
they could say the insecurity of our campus with UNL Police Department, for example. So uh, that's equally a concern. You know, in, in some ways, I might even say more of a concern in this surge as we've experienced in a lot of sectors of the economy that we're seeing out there. Think of the airlines, for example, that have experienced this over the last several weeks. That would be a consideration, right? So if we got to a point where we couldn't staff appropriately our classes, our dining halls, our residence halls, our safety and security teams for the university, our operations teams for the university, that would be a different question, right? And we would need to be able to pivot to say, now, how do we manage that in a way that maintains safety and security, but at the same time, you know, we can't operate because we don't have the people. Uh, that makes sense. Yes, we've not hit that yet, thankfully. So, uh, but that would be a, a a different scenario that we would have to consider. Sure, of course. Um, to sort of pivot a little bit, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and leading health experts have consistently stressed the importance of vaccines. You have mm -hmm. as well. Yet UNL has consistently stopped short of mandating. Can you talk about that decision, and is there any world in which they do become mandatory here? Well, we, we, we have not gone to a, a mandate or a requirement for vaccine protection. Uh, we have felt that is a personal choice for people to make, and that as long as we can mitigate the risks associated with the transmission of COVID-19 for our population, that we would not mandate but strongly encourage, and we continue to be in that place currently with, uh, with vaccines. Now, the encouragement of vaccine protection, as you'll recall, over the past effectively 12 months, we started in January, about this time last year, with our first availability of vaccines as part of our community. Um, getting into that 80% kind of level plus for all of the populations on our campus, higher in some sectors than in others, as you know, but into that level of protection, we feel is, is quite good and has helped for us to reduce the transmission or reduce the availability of transmission. Uh, but we don't intend to go to a mandate uh, for vaccines at this stage uh, of the game. Understood. Um, I, the biggest thing on vaccines right now is obviously getting folks boosted. Um, you've encouraged community members to submit the booster information like they did for their initial vaccinations last semester, and you know, released that percentage of campus who reported it. Will you do similarly for boosters, and how much do the vaccination rates go into the policies that you create? Well, we, we certainly are encouraging everyone and have been since the availability of the boosters came up, came available last fall to receive their booster at the appropriate time and under the appropriate circumstances. I'm looking forward to getting mine next week because I couldn't for 90 days. I was scheduled to get my own booster the week I, I <laughs> tested positive for Always COVID, unfortunately. So I am looking forward to January 26th to receive my, my booster shot on, on schedule and on time. So we certainly are encouraging everyone to be on schedule with their their uh, their booster shots for whatever vaccine they may have had, uh, and we'll continue to do that. We have a clinic on campus. You'll you'll know next next week on the 26th uh, to help assist moving that forward. Um, we we do uh, want to know that there is a high level of protection amongst as many of our 
community as possible. So uh, we'll continue to encourage it. We will, we will ask people to voluntarily provide that information over time. You know, less, it's less critical now than it would have been with vaccine status, as I think you can understand a year ago, as we use that as a means of both encouraging vaccination and also a means of testing stratification that we use in the fall. So you know, we certainly are going to continue to encourage everyone to either receive their initial vaccination or the appropriate boosters uh, that will help support their immunity moving forward. Gotcha, thank you so much. Um, let's talk masks for a moment. Uh, in your announcement of spring 2022 protocols earlier this month, you said the university is temporarily requiring masks. Is there an internal timeline for when you expect the university will not require masks and are there thresholds that we can? No, uh, not at this point. I mean, we're, we're seeing what the next few weeks unfold for us, certainly. Um, we all remember the history of the last time period <laughs> where there was a directed health measure in place for Lincoln and Lancaster County that were part of around face coverings that um, went away just before Christmas, was rescinded or removed as a, as a local directed health measure just before the holidays. Uh, at this point, Lincoln and Lancaster County have not reinstituted that directed health measure, but we have in the best interest of our campus community as we talked about earlier given the current conditions around us and the fact that we are one of the densest communities and populations of people from all all walks all places all you know, uh, sources uh, here at UNL in the state of Nebraska so we we uh, will continue to evaluate our data relative to COVID-19 transmission to determine when we might be able to relax that, much in the same way that the Lincoln Lancaster County Health Department did, you know, prior to the holidays. Mm -hmm. So no definite timeline, you know, but we will continue to evaluate it as we see the next few weeks unfold. Understood. There's considerable misinformation about COVID-19 out there. We've seen that repeatedly throughout the pandemic. How do you see the university's role in breaking through that and providing accurate information? Yeah, I think we have, I'm really proud of the way that the university has has handled COVID-19 in general, right? I know we're all tired. We're all, you know, we're sitting here in this podcast room today um, wearing masks and, you know, distancing ourselves appropriately and being careful given the conditions that we're all tired. We're all tired of it. I mean, no one, I don't think anyone you meet will say, that they aren't somewhat COVID-19 pandemic fatigued, right, from, uh, from that viewpoint. I know we all are, um, you know, but we have, we have done, I think, a very good and effective job as an institution of presenting those risks, to describing what those risks are, to, to applying the best mitigation strategies we can for a community like ours and of our size, and to communicate that. Uh, as effectively and consistently as we can. Our team, I think, has done a great job with that, um, including, you know, what the right things are to do, including the, the science as we understand it, of the virus, of its transmission, of the importance of vaccination, of the safety and efficacy of vaccination and the need for doing that. We will continue to do that and continue to be that uh, voice in that regard. Um, as well as how to protect oneself once they 
may have experienced, like I did myself, as I mentioned earlier, COVID-19 and those around them. So we will continue to be a voice that will rely on that science to guide our decisions. Um, is there anything you want to say to the UNL community on the coronavirus as we continue to go through this pandemic? Uh, nothing more than what I just said. Sure. <laughs> I know we're tired. <laughs> I know we, you know, we've we've all been through multiple forms of masks, you know, the and mask uh, fashion or however you want to think about it. We have, you know, families are tired, schools are tired, our educators and our first responders and our healthcare workers are tired. You know, you can't. You know, you're in the journalism business, you can't pick up a publication and not read that every day. <laughs> um, and at this point, you know, while we might say we see the end in sight, we don't know. So there's, you know, we're, all, we're all tired. But let's continue to do everything we can to be as protective and serve the public good as we can here in our institution in the time we're living in. We've adapted, we continue to adapt. And I just call on all of our all of our university community to continue doing that, continue to practice grace with one another. I've said that a number of times during the the pandemic. Even though I know we're tired, we will get through this. And I know that a lot of information is changing every day, even. How can students expect to be updated when that information does change? Yeah, we'll we'll continue to provide updates. You know, there's um, you're, you're in the journalism business, so you know when you can over-communicate and when you, <laughs> when you get people to listen to you and to read what you said and that kind of thing. But uh, we will continue to update when there is any change in policy and do that effectively and timely. Uh, as we were talking about face masks earlier, people were going to be wondering about that going into the semester or testing protocol changes, which you know, we've gone through this reentry testing. Our data will help guide us and direct us as to what the the plan will be the next two weeks or the next three weeks. So we'll need to communicate readily, and we'll we'll do that. Uh, also, would point that the dashboard is again active. You know, so people can actually see what you know what level of a of positive cases we're experiencing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know we spent a long time on that section, but obviously it's been <laughs> No, it's pretty important. timely. It's pretty timely. It's pretty <laughs> important for everyone to know what's going on. And, um, you know, and uh, we just need to hang in there and try to get through this together. I'll go ahead and hand off to Carly now. Yeah, so now we're going to transition to our second topic, which kind of covers sexual misconduct and prevention and everything moving forward. So last semester began with nightly protests regarding a sexual assault on, on this campus. And what some protest, protesters said was the continued inaction of the university over the years to address it. Now that we're rounding into a new semester, we'd like to hear directly from you what you learned from those protests and how it informed your response. Well, for, first, you know, I think we all understand, and I've said this multiple times, that sexual misconduct is a tragedy in its own right. Uh, none of us want to see that happen. It should not happen. It's a violation of the rights of individuals that are affected by it, and, and we, we would hope to see that minimized on our campus and in our community um, on a regular basis. The events of uh, around last semester and the start of the semester, the alleged sexual assault that led to that, you know, those protests, first, I, as I said last fall, no matter how difficult that seemed to be at the time, that you know, I appreciated the passion and the the voice of our students and of our student body and the 
and of the concerns and the protests that were raised um, around those issues. So uh, with those two things right up front, um, you know, just want to kind of think back to a little bit of what that was like for all of us uh, at the start of the fall semester last year. You know, we, we also know uh, that the, the issue of sexual misconduct is policy driven. You know, when you're in an institution of higher education or a business or any other kinds of organizations, for us in higher education, we have our own level of policies that are, that are somewhat directed to us federally uh, under Title IX and that we have legal obligations and policy obligations that we have to uphold to be in compliance with those federal uh, rules that we follow. Um, it is somewhat unfortunate, I would say, that over time, you know, I've been in this role, I'm in my sixth year as chancellor, the guidance that we have for Title IX has changed multiple times within that six-year period that we have to follow and that we have to adapt to. Um, we might remember historically that that guidance that changed the last time, you know, if you think back in the previous administration federally, there was major change that was put forward in, um, in the administration of Title IX and around sexual misconduct hearings in particular, we were implementing that change in guidance last August. So if you put in context, remember we were coming back into a new, new fall semester. We were required by the federal government to have in place by last August the policy changes that adapted that policy relative to Title IX and had worked hard to put that in place across the University of Nebraska system and here at UNL to be in compliance. It changed the way our hearings were done. It changed the, the, the um, both sides of the discussion, right? The, the complainant, you know, and the, the alleged, you know, both on both sides of that equation. Um, there, the implementation of that, I uh, will be very candid, has been challenging, right? Because in order for you to implement those policies, um, we, we had our first experiences with those early in the fall term were uh, challenging. They were very long, they were very drawn out hearings that created a great challenge for us to figure out how to do that in a fair way and in a trauma-informed way that's part of what we have adopted here, you know, in our, our own thinking. So there's just a, a lot of uh, uh, change, right? A lot of change that is, don't want to say beyond our control, but to some degree it is beyond our control. We're implementing that change under those, those policies and guidelines. Um, you'll recall and this was a part of the conversation on campus last September in particular and early October, that the planning around sexual misconduct and prevention of sexual misconduct on our campus had gone back several years back. And you'll, you'll remember the DN did a lot of, lot of reporting on the Dear UNL group and the issues that the Dear UNL group raised to the administration around particularly implementation of policies around sexual misconduct. And we had established and put at work the collaborative to prevent sexual misconduct. 
that went to work during 2019 and 20 to present a report, which they did in October of 2020, uh, that had a lot of very detailed recommendations around policy, around prevention, around advocacy, in all areas of sexual misconduct. Uh, we had taken that report in October of 20, October, November of 20, and begun to work with implementation of a number of things that were out, uh, that were out of that effort and were recommended by that effort. Um, following last fall and when we had the incident on campus that, that resulted in the protests, we went back to and looked at the, that report again um, and moved to establish the Permanent Chancellor's Commission to prevent sexual misconduct started their work this past fall. I was very pleased about that. They started their work in October. Uh, 22 members of that uh, commission, that um, some of whom had been on the collaborative earlier, and faculty, staff, and students, some that were new that we brought expertise to the table uh, to form the commission, again, led by Dr. Sue Swear, who had been one of the co-chairs of the collaborative a year earlier, um, and they have you know, kicked off and started uh, their work. So, so all of that is good. All of that is very, very good moving forward. You also remember that I think it was by mid-September, roughly mid-September, we spoke to the stu student body and talked about a number of immediate things that we felt were important to implement on campus, uh, both that had to do with our care Center, the, the Center for Advocacy, Recovery, and Education uh, around sexual misconduct, uh, as well as, you know, where students can find help in this area. And we talked about the need to increase our number of advocates from, that were part of CARE from two to four, you might recall that, and to put in place someone that would really focus as a director of education to prevent sexual misconduct. Uh, those things are underway with us and we're in the process now of filling those positions for the additional care advocates and we're in the process of finalizing the position for the Director of Education that will work jointly between Title IX in the institu in, uh, Institutional Equity and Compliance area here and with Student Affairs with the, you know, that side of our, our equation. Um, we also talked about relocating the care advocates to Nyhart Hall and our Women's Center as well over to Nyhart Hall. That is in the process of being finalized as well. We hope to have that done before too far into the spring semester that will provide, a, I'll call it a safe and central place for people that will be an easy access and will be centered there with all of those resources there. So we're pleased about you know, that moving forward as well. So a lot, a lot has happened, you know, but I'll harken back and say you know, the, the first part of last semester was uh, in many ways not the way any of us anticipated the semester starting when we have an event like that happen that spurred then the reactions that, the, that many had to it but we've made some really positive progress coming out of it, I think, moving forward. 
Yeah, and we still have not heard an update into the allegation that sparked those protests last semester. Is there anything you could say about that? No, there's nothing further I can say about that. You know, that, that all is in the hands of uh, those who adjudicate those things, right? So the, the, there has to be a complaint to Title IX filed. That process is clear and how that's followed, followed through. And then relative to any further action would be responsibility of, of law enforcement authorities. So there, I don't have anything further to add there. And so obviously students want to know more, uh, and if more can't be said right now, what do you say to those students in particular? Well, you know, I, I think what I say is that we do, on a regular and ongoing basis, have this as a priority that we do everything we can in the area of sexual misconduct to prevent to deal fairly with if and when those those levels of misconduct may occur, following all of the processes that we have as best practice and required processes that we have. And we'll continue to do that. Um, I, I am reminded though, and I have been reminded, I've reminded myself of this many times on this topic because this, this is a topic where unfortunately we can't control it all. Yeah, just really, we can't control it all. All we can do is respond to when those things happen to be fair in our treatment and to make sure that we are doing everything we can to, uh, to help any of those students who are affected by you know, any instances of, of sexual misconduct. One thing I failed to mention earlier, I just realized and I wanted to make sure I said this as well. We also talked about last fall this goes back to the advocacy, you know, the advocacy piece for, for those who may experience sexual misconduct. Um, I talked about the care office and the care advocates. There also was a conversation that we initiated last September about re-engaging with more than we already were doing with Voices of Hope. Um, and that, that is also moving forward. Kelly King and our our student affairs division has been re-engaging with student level support through ASUM. Voices of Hope bringing them more back into a partnership equation with us beyond the availability they still have for students who might experience sexual misconduct. Voices of Hope were still available to them, it just wasn't formal with the university. So we, we have re-engaged that conversation. Yeah, and kind of addressing the outline steps that you had to address sexual misconduct at the ASUN meeting on September 1st, you've pretty much mentioned uh, most of them, but I just wanted to highlight about the one about creating a new mandatory sexual misconduct training mm -hmm. for students. Mm -hmm. uh, could you kind of tell us more about that and when we could expect Yeah, that? so the, there was a, an important plank of that conversation that had to do on the prevention side with how we use best practice and best, uh, I'll, I'll call it, get the most uptake, right? The most uptake of, of prevention and education efforts with all of our community, our students, our faculty, and our staff across the board. We had instituted last year, and for the first, we were in the first year of it in 2021 effectively, uh, required level training for faculty, staff, and encouragement as much as possible with students. Um, and that was online. It was kind of a standardized online kind of format for 
for training and prevention of sexual misconduct. Um, we, we are revisiting that and revisiting the format and form of that training. Uh, there was a strong desire in the collaborative that I mentioned earlier, and one of the recommendations that came forward out of the collaborative has been reinforced in the commission this past fall, is the desire for more of that to be peer mentor-based training that still captures the core tenets of what we want to capture in you know, training on the basics of sexual misconduct prevention but use of peer mentoring to do that. So that is under development for hopeful implementation with our incoming year of um, the academic year 22-23. So for this summer, targeted for this summer for us to, to move forward with that. So I mentioned the director of education that we're in the process of hiring. They certainly will be part of that process, but those conversations are occurring. Yeah, besides these outlined steps from September, how will UNL continue conversations and actions about and against sexual misconduct? Uh, we, I, I don't think I have a lot to add there beyond what we have already talked about. Um, the, a number of these steps are very important steps. The commission that I mentioned earlier will continue to evaluate places of improvement for us the ways we can improve in all of these areas around sexual misconduct. Uh, I'm expecting the, com the commission to give me their first feedback report early in the semester as they were at work, as I mentioned, in October, November, December of this past year. Uh, we will continue to take recommendations from them uh, as we move forward. Um, it's incumbent on all of us to do everything we can to prevent you know, sexual misconduct, and that's, uh, I think that's a bottom line. And Chancellor Green, you were a member of Greek Life yourself. What changes, if any, are coming for the system, and what, in your opinion, are the benefits of Greek Life? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, um, because I, I left that, that's another one that I left out. It's hard to remember all this stuff that I was running <laughs> in your brain, right? Um, so, um, Yes, I was a member of Greek Life as an undergraduate, not at this institution, but at my own alma mater at Virginia Tech a um, long time ago, um, and had been active in Greek organizational life most of my life through that experience. I was on my National Greek Board of Directors, Greek, Greek Organization Board of Directors a few years ago. Uh, all four of our children, um, my own children who are UNL alums, alumni, um, or were members of the Greek um, organizations here, of Greek organizations here at UNL. So it's been a very positive part of my own personal life, and I believe very strongly in the attributes and, and um, positives of, of being a, a member of a Greek organization. I also will say that we need to continue to improve and enhance the, the Greek experience uh, within contemporary times within the contemporary times we live in. Uh, we do have planned um, a Greek summit that we have planned for later this semester. I'm not remembering the exact date off the top of my head. I think it's in late February, if I remember correctly, um, that we are bringing together all of the organizational leaders, so the officers of our Greek chapters, uh, both sororities and fraternities across campus, alumni advisors, alumni presidents, or leadership of the alumni organizations for those houses, 
as a means of starting that conversation at a different level. And there, there are things that I think we should be considering as potential policy changes around Greek life at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm going to be discussing those with the Greek summer, Summit, or at least proposing conversation and discussion about those. For example, um, don't know if this will happen or not. This is just kind of a preceding, I'm going to throw this question out to the group. You know, we have a... Um, disproportionate policy in the way that Greek life is handled in men versus in women on our campus. For example, sorority life uh, starts with rush in the fall that is immediately prior to the beginning of the fall semester for freshmen. Um, a, the fraternity system of course does rush individually by houses during the summer prior to the start of that fall semester for freshmen. Men live in fraternity houses. Women do not live in sorority houses as freshmen under Panhellenic Council guidance nationally. Uh, I wonder about that. And that's the way I'm going to say it to the Greek Summit. I've, I've wondered about it for some time. Uh, as I was not allowed to live in a fraternity house as a freshman student at Virginia Tech. Our policy was you had to be a sophomore and you could not rush a house until you had an established grade point average successfully on campus uh, before you could even be offered membership in a fraternity. So there's different approaches to this and I, I'm going to be raising some of these questions with our Greek organizations to think about what is right for UNL in 2022, in 2023, versus what our traditions may have been for a long time that, that might need to be thought about a little bit differently. So, so I'm looking forward to that conversation coming up later in February with, uh, with the leaders of Greek organizations and their alumni associations. Do you think UNL has a sexual assault problem or that there's a sexual assault or misconduct problem within the UNL Greek system community? Well, I, I go back to what we said at the beginning of the conversation about sexual misconduct. Um, it's hard to say that you, all, you, you are never going to experience anything right with most things there's there's some level of prevalence that you deal with in you know in human populations so to say that zero sexual misconduct is what we want it is what we want <laughs> but to say that, that that's realistic you know it may be a different a different thing that makes sense um, so you know I we certainly do not want to see sexual misconduct that causes harm causes trauma, causes, uh, you know, effects that can affect one's life for a long time into the future. We want to prevent that and we want to minimize that. So, uh, so do we have a sexual assault history of sexual assault or of misconduct, sexual misconduct? Yes, we do. We, we do have those things that occur around our campus community. We do have them in students. We do have them sometimes with faculty and staff that have to be appropriately you know, handled and dealt with as well. Would we like for that to be zero? Yes. <laughs> Desperately we would like for that to be zero. Is that realistic? Well, we want to get as close to that as we can. 
right? So with that said, Greek system, so relative to the Greek system, do we have a higher prevalence of sexual assault in the Greek system that in, than we have in general? We're looking at that very carefully, I will tell you. You know, I think it's, it's often presumed, and I'm not saying this because I'm Greek, I'm just saying that's the, the perception is there, that it's presumed that the rate of sexual misconduct seems to be higher or appears to be higher associated with the Greek system than, than not. I don't know that we can say that empirically here, that we can say that based on our own data because we have sexual misconduct that occurs outside of the Greek system entirely uh, as well. So, you know, but, but uh, you know, the Greek organizations here are a big part of our culture. Right? We have a large number of students who are members of Greek organizations uh, some social organizations, some social professional, where my own fraternity was a social professional fraternity. You know, so um, by default, they're a large percentage of our population, right? When you look at it that way, but empirically, I don't know that we can say that there is, there is more sexual assault in the Greek system than not. Sexual assault occurs, you know, unfortunately, across all sectors to some degree of our or sexual misconduct, I should say, occurs across you know, all sectors, and, and trying to pin it on one or the other probably isn't totally fair. Thank you for answering my questions regarding that. I'm now going to transition to Zach's section. Yeah, Chancellor Green, we want to ask a few questions about the journey for anti-racism and racial equities commitment to action that was released in November. And you yourself have said in statements that this plan is critically important for the future of UNL. Mm -hmm. We know you've already articulated this, but why is that? And how is this plan a way to change the UNL experience for students? Yeah, so, so uh, the broader area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right, which I, I have been, uh, I'm going to kind of frame this historically for you. Um, when I was Vice Chancellor of the Institute of Ag and Natural Resources here from 2010 to 2016. The university was engaged in a lot of conversation about how to enhance our diversity efforts, how to enhance our inclusion efforts, and now we refer to it as inclusive excellence efforts. And there was a tremendous amount of both study of those efforts as well as plans for enhancing those efforts that went into play in 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, and that led to what became our diversity plan. You know, and the initial part of that plan was based out of, you know, a process that we went through as a campus, as a campus community in 2014, 15, and 16. This was actually occurring when I became chancellor in 2016, led by Rona Hululani. And Rona and her consulting firm, Hululani and Associates, we identified them as a leader nationally in this area. And it was recommended that we bring in Hululani and Associates and really map the University of Nebraska-Lincoln broadly in diversity and inclusion which we did in 2016, fall of 2016, early 2017. And what their report told us was that there was a lot of activity around diversity and inclusion. It was spread all over campus. It was very scattered in its approach, but it was not very well coordinated. 
and it was not very well, it, it wasn't strategically thought of as a, across the institution. The biggest recommendation out of that report was that we devote efforts to hiring a vice chancellor for diversity and inclusion and overcome that, that fragmentation, if you would, across the campus. So we launched down that path. Uh, we hired Marco Barker to come to campus as our first vice chancellor of diversity and inclusion in 2018. And we're very pleased when Marco joined us. Um, and he has put into place, and I know you have covered some of this in, in the Daily Nebraskan as well, a plan for diversity, a conversation about diversity at a much higher level, to the point where almost all of the entities on our campus have a diversity plan. It is part of their strategic plans, part of who, who we are as an institution. It's part of our N2025 plan in a very key way uh, across the university. Then, of course, you also remember you know, that underneath some of that, the 2014 period, the 2015 period, when we had our first organized events here on campus, I think the first one was in 2014, if I remember correctly, um, around deaths of young African Americans, right? So the, the uh, Missouri case that will, many will remember from 2014, the Ferguson case, was the first big event rally that was held here on our campus. I was there, I remember it very well. Um, and voices being raised about what are we going to do to overcome some of the issues that are associated with race or associated with you know, implicit bias associated with race um, here at our own institution. Um, I remember two of those rallies really, really well. One in 2014, I think another in 2017, I might have my dates wrong, but something like that, where the same concerns and demands, I'll call them, were raised by groups of our own students on campus saying, why don't we do this? Or why don't we address, you know, the, uh, I remember the 2014, there was a list of nine, I think if I remember correctly, kind of things they were really saying needed to be worked on. And the university said, we will work on these things and work on moving them forward. Um, now fast forward to 2020. And in the summer of 2020, with the events that occurred with multiple, George Floyd certainly brought his death, brought this to a much higher level of consciousness and awareness across, across our country, but there were a mul multiple deaths that were involved as we are now seeing the court cases play out uh, from those um, in, in recent months. And that elevated a whole other level of what do we do about racial issues broadly? Uh, what do we do about race-related issues internally on our campus and in our institution? And do we have you know, things that we should concentrate on and move forward? And you've seen, I know, the, the conversations of the journey on anti-racism and racial equity, the formative, formative stages of that in the summer of 2020, faculty, um, co-leads who were identified to help lead us in that conversation, to help guide that conversation. So the commitment to action, you know, that we um, communicated to our community on campus in uh, mid-November, 
is what we heard in those conversations, right? Things that we heard that are pragmatic, that um, relate to what we can commit to in terms of actions to addressing many of these kinds of issues, particularly around racial equity um, in our institution. You know, you'll, you'll note that in that commitment to action, everything in there starts with what we heard <laughs> is the start of that language. And then there are a series of pragmatic steps or commitments to things that we really want to work on and look at across our institution. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of that commitment document. I continue to be proud of that commitment document. We have a long way to go from the commitment to the implementation, right? Because if you go through that document, there are 33 particular things that are in there, you know, uh, uh, on the five kind of areas that are, that are outlined, and there's a set of sub-items under each of those, so there's kind of 33 pragmatic commitments that are there. The vast majority of those are to be, <laughs> or excuse the acronym, TBD, to be determined in terms of how we move forward with those. This next six-month period ahead of us, uh, here in the spring term and the rest of this academic year, quote-unquote, is going to be very important in helping frame how to move to implementation of many of those steps moving forward. So, uh, so I'm pleased with it and pleased that we're, we're able to be now thinking about, well, how do we go about you know, working on some of those commitments that are there. And I want to ask you, you know, this plan has received considerable criticism um, since its release in mid-November, and this is something that's going to change the experience for students. So where do you see this plan going next, and when will students start to feel the effects of it for them? Yeah, as I, as I mentioned, Zach, um, you know, there, uh, I think there, yes, I'm aware there's been a little bit of, of uh, conversation and criticism about the the commitment to action, uh, you know, there there is a, unfortunately a lot of misperception there associated with that, and um, you know, we don't need to talk about that further. But but the implementation is the next step. Figuring out the implementation, most of those things that are commitments in there define a need. They define what a need might be, but we have to then determine well, how do we go about addressing that need? What will an implementation of that look like? How will we develop the process associated with each of those things? Some that are much more, how do I put it, some that are much broader than others, right? Require a lot more of a design around implementation versus others that are, are more direct, more specific, have a little bit of an easier implementation associated with them. Where there might be things that come into that implementation that require levels of approval up through the system. So think curriculum, for example, or think anything that might be a policy kind of change. We would have a process we will need to go through in order to implement that. Some of those things might involve campus approval. Some of those things might involve Board of Regents approvals, where those things would have to move through a process in order to do that. Um, I'm actually looking forward, and I'm um, we're probably going to talk about this a little bit in the next section, but I'm looking forward to conversations this spring, uh, both across our colleges and our units, uh, but also with key stakeholder groups about how we develop and design those implementation steps. 
with my goal, you know, is just looking at it from the the downstream impact of moving into these commitments for all the right reasons, of being in a place where going into 2023, we're able to really being a be able to see progress on a number of these fronts that are that are detailed in that commitment to action. How can students, if they want to get involved, jump into here? What can they do to look ahead to the implementation of this plan? Well, I think there, there will be opportunities for conversation that will occur on campus during this semester. I think you can look forward to that, where there will be continued opportunities in thinking about how we implement some of these areas for there to be a lot of input and involvement of students. Um, and we certainly are going to see that in the faculty and the staff side as well. So we, you'll keep your ears open. We'll, we'll find ways to do that and for there to be those conversations. Um, I'm really excited about this school year, you know, and uh, about the, I'll think, I'll call it the 2022 year. You know, I know we're in spring semester in the second half of an academic year, but I'm really excited about 2022. Um, you know, beyond COVID policy and beyond the kind of pivots that we've had to deal with in, in society, you know, we've, we're now entering our third year of a five-year strategic plan that's pretty bold for our institution that we launched in 2019, uh, formally launched in 2019. And I'm excited about both the progress that we are seeing in that strategic plan at kind of approaching midpoint, if you want to think of it that way, of a five-year plan. Um, I'm excited about the conversations we're going to be having about that this term. And with the N2025 strategic plan, I know a key part of that are seven grand challenges mm -hmm. the university is going to address, including anti-racism and right. racial equity, right. climate resilience, early childhood and development, health equity, quantum science and engineering, science and technology literacy for society, and sustainable food and water security. Right. Obviously, no easy task. Um, right. One alone is a lot, and then all seven. So how are you moving forward with those seven grand challenges? We've, we've made good progress. You know, if you'll, you remember a year ago, a little less than a year ago, that was the focus of the State of Our University Address in 2021, uh, was the identification of and publicly disclosure for the first time of those seven grand challenge themes. Uh, we have had great progress over the course of this year, <coughs> led primarily by our, our Office of Research and Economic Development and their team around conversations in each of those grand challenges uh, with our faculty in thinking about ways to scope those, bring resources to those. There actually is a proposal process that is playing out right now, you know, in the early part of the spring term around first funding for those, those uh, seven areas that we'll see come to fruition this spring. So a lot of activity in the grand challenges. Uh, you know, some of those, I, I guess I would draw attention to the fact that while there are seven big theme areas, big grand challenge areas there, there are some of those we have institutionally been leaders in previously. So thinking about sustainable water and food security is an example of an area that we have worked in for a long time as an institution or well known around the world. Early childhood development is another area that we've worked in uh, for a long time. So some my point is, some will require more building than others versus augmenting of what we're doing. Um, climate resilience and adaptation, we have a lot of efforts in that area, but we're also thinking about how to expand that to meet the needs that are there with climate change in particular. 
um, currently in line ahead of us. So exciting work there. That will also be part of the conversations during Charter Week to, to have a conversation about where we are in the grand challenges and then moving forward. I'm going to pass it over, um, whichever one of you, Nick or Carly, would like to do the final question, and we'll close out here. Yeah, we've asked you to reflect on multiple aspects of last semester. Is there anything else you'd like to reflect on? You know, I, um, I guess I would reflect on the fact that uh, even in challenging times, you know, we've talked about some challenges, right? We've talked about um, challenges with protection of health, whether that's from a pandemic or whether that's from mental protection associated with misconduct, for example. Uh, we've got challenges associated with operations in a very tight labor market. You know, we didn't talk about that, but it's kind of also a, something that is out there currently, you know, coming out of. You know, we're in the next stages of, of post-COVID-19 pandemic. With all of that said, higher education and the mission that we serve in higher education of equipping the next generation for being as productive citizens as possible has never been more important. You know, it's never been more important. It's been challenging given the conditions that we all have been living through over these recent years, but it's never been more important. And what we do here at the University of Nebraska is a major institution in higher education. What we do with our students, what we do with our research, what we do with our outreach of that education and research as a land-grant university has never been more important in 153 years than it is this year. And I reflect on that regularly, you know, um, above all of what seems like a lot of noise in the, the challenges that we, we exist in. So that would be my final reflection in that I hope that our students and our faculty and our staff in the term that we have ahead are successful, that they learn a tremendous amount, that they take care of one another, and that we have a great semester. Is there anything else you'd like to mention about the end 2025 plan this upcoming semester or any other topic we've discussed today? No, the only, the only thing I would mention is, I, and I, I didn't mention this earlier, but we have a brand new Executive Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs, um, a Chief Academic Officer for the institution uh, that we named last week. Uh, we announced Kathy Ankerson, um, who had previously been up to today. <laughs> had previously been the Dean of the College of Architecture for the last five and a half years, and Kathy is assuming the role today as our new Executive Vice Chancellor and Chief Academic Officer. I'm very excited about Kathy's appointment. Uh, she is a very skilled administrator, a uh, very uh, highly qualified educator, a very acclaimed educator in her own right, and she was the successful candidate out of an internal search that we conducted on campus following Elizabeth Spillers. Uh, stepping down from that position last fall and I was very pleased to get Kathy named to the position and for her to be stepping into this leadership role. A lot of what we were talking about earlier about Charter Week, Kathy will be involved in that with me in, in doing that across the campus. Uh, so very excited about her appointment. Um, we also have another key appointment to name this fall, or this from this fall. 
uh, with Bill Nunes, who had been our Vice Chancellor of Business and Finance upon his departure. Uh, he, he moved to some place called Texas uh, here <laughs> last week to take a new role at Texas Christian University. I'm uh, happy for Bill, a big loss for us. Uh, Bill was a tremendous leader here and had been a great uh, uh, Business and Finance Vice Chancellor these last five years. So we are in the process of that hire, which um, we will talk about publicly in February when we start that search and that process to identify a new leader for our business and, and finance operations. Well, thank you, Chancellor Green, for sitting down with us. We always appreciate the opportunity to sit down with you, and we'll be sure to follow up with you and your office as the semester progresses. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the work that Daily Nebraskan does. You know, journalism is important, and Relaying of information is extremely important, and you, of course, are gaining great experience uh, as your members of the DN staff and your time here at the university as well, so appreciate the DN. Thank you. To all of you tuning in, thank you for checking out Campus Conversations. Be sure to join us for future episodes and check out our website for daily content throughout the semester. We wish all of us the best for the spring 2022 semester. Thank you.